0: Anybody out there? Roll up! Roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here, hosts Dadry Leyland. Star Trek Voyager was launched amidst a blaze of publicity and hype on the new Paramount television network in 1995 arguably the years 1990 through 1998, were the peak of the Star Trek franchise on television. Star Trek The Next Generation had earned critical and commercial acclaim, leading to two well-received, if not entirely creatively successful, next-generation movies. Star Trek Deep Space Nine blossomed and ended its run, but whilst creatively satisfying, it was not the commercial darling that The Next Generation was. Paramount Pictures had long held ambitions of launching their own TV network something they had been trying to do since 1976 and wanted a new Star Trek show to anchor the new network ironically they'd been down this route before and with a Star Trek series but this time it felt more real With Deep Space Nine tied up with syndication contracts and Paramount's feeling that DS9 wasn't really capable of carrying the Trek banner on its own anyway, the powers that were wanted a more familiar ship-bound series, more in keeping with Trek's themes of exploration. The series that followed was Star Trek Voyager and was developed by Rick Berman, Michael Piller and Jerry Taylor, all of whom had been toiling in the Trek trenches for many years at this point. There was some concern that another show would be taking too many drinks from the Trek well, but DS9 had shown that the audience would support two Trek series on the air at once without reaching saturation point. Looking back, this seems incredibly naive. Lots of shows have had spin-offs on the air at the same time as their parent series, and nowadays one only has to look at how many CSI, Law & Order, Marvel Netflix and DC comic shows seem to happily run concurrently to see that Trek was simply ahead of the curve. Indeed, rewatching The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager recently, it's been amazing to see how this series had a shared universe long before that was the norm. In developing the show, Berman, Pillar, and Taylor took their cues from an episode or two of The Next Generation. In particular, the segments were No One Has Gone Before and Cue Who. In both of these stories, the Enterprise found itself in a far-off region of space with no way to return home, but of course they managed it in the allotted 45 minutes of screen time. What if, the threesome mused, the USS Voyager did the same, but there was no magic click of the fingers at the end? This would really put the Voyager crew where none had gone before, and reduce their access to fuel, equipment and food. The series was originally to have followed this idea more closely, having the crew have to deal with a broken ship, faulty and irreplaceable technology, and a crew that wouldn't necessarily be loyal to the captain, causing friction. Sadly, we all know how that turned out and we would have to wait until Ron Moore's reimagining of Battlestar Galactica to see this original premise fulfilled. The spitballing of ideas for Voyager, though, led to tying Voyager into the overall story of that of the Maquis, a renegade group of insurgents that had previously appeared in the Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. These Mackie agents would be forced to work with Starfleet's finest in order to find a way home, and would be a way around Gene Roddenberry's dictum that Starfleet personnel were all boring stiffs who never disagreed about anything, and this would hopefully lead to some meaty conflict between the crew. Again, we all know how that turned out. With the basic premise in place, work began on turning these ideas into reality. Now, Voyager was a gamble. It was the first Trek series to be on a network since the original, but it also had a pedigree. The -the behind-the-scenes team had been producing quality work on a budget for eight years now, and knew how to helm a Star Trek series. They also had the advantage of props, costumes and models already built that they could repurpose as necessary. The pilot episode, as usual for these things, went through considerable development and rewrites, and, as with the original show, went through two captains. Originally, Genevieve Bouyol was cast as the series' lead Catherine Janeway. There was a lot riding on this decision, as it was the first time a Star Trek show had been anchored by a woman. Conversations were even had on the Paramount lot, wondering if a woman was up to the task of leading such a demanding and exhausting shooting schedule. Rick Berman, after meeting Bujold, was uneasy, feeling she wasn't quite right for the gig. Not from an acting standpoint, but from an endurance point of view. He stressed the working hours and long production schedule of a complicated production like Star Trek, dealing with effects, makeup, and all the other aspects of the fast-paced nature of television production that she, as a movie actress, may not be used to. Two days into the production, Berman's fears were realised as Bujold refused to exit her trailer, unable to cope with the demands of the role. Bujold was let go, and Kate Mulgrew was cast on the Friday as shooting on the pilot continued with non-Janeway scenes. After an intense weekend of costume fitting, Mulgrew began work in earnest the following Monday. The rest of the casting went well, with all the actors settling into the roles easily and quickly. Alongside Mulgrew, the series featured Robert Beltran as Chacote, Janeway's first officer and former member of the Maquis. Roxanne Dawson as Bellana Torres, chief engineer and former member of the Maquis, as well as half-human, half-Klingon. Robert Duncan McNeil was Tom Paris, con officer. Jennifer Lien was Kes, nurse and medical apprentice. Ethan Phillips was Neelix, chief morale officer and chef, and later Federation ambassador to the Delta Quadrant. Robert Picardo was the chief medical officer, actually the emergency medical hologram after the real chief medical officer was killed in the pilot. Tim Ross was Tuvok, Vulcan chief security and tactical officer, and Garrett Wang was Harry Kim, neophyte operational officer. Some had had previous experience in Trek, with Tim Russ and Ethan Phillips both appearing in The Next Generation, sometimes under heavy makeup. Robert Duncan McNeil also appeared in The Next Generation, starring as Nick Locarno in The First Duty. The thing with McNeil was that he was a major guest star, not a background player like Russ or under latex like Phillips. The obvious reuse of the actor was compounded by the character himself. Lucano is Tom Paris... He doesn't just look like him, he's the same character. The only reason I can see for Paris not being Locarno is that the writer of the first duty, in this case Ron Moore and Shankar, would have received a regular payment. Why give that money away when you can change the name of the character and pocket the money yourself, eh Rick? Over here in the UK, Star Trek Voyager debuted before The Next Generation had finished its run due to Paramount's stupid embargo on selling the former series. With Voyager, Paramount were swallowing the full cost of the show and wanted to recoup their losses quickly and therefore sold the series abroad straight away. Voyager initially aired as part of Star Trek Knight on the 26th of August 1996. Now, I have been quite vocal in my dislike of Voyager. The show never gelled for me in the way The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine and even Enterprise eventually did. They never explored the premise of the show to my satisfaction and, as mentioned, it would take Ron Moore's take on Battlestar Galactica to see a true representation of an old warhorse of a ship being held together by spit and bailing wire, a ragged crew on the verge of exhaustion and the true cost of constantly having to sacrifice your values for the sake of survival. Voyager always felt too safe. That said... I have been on a bit of a Star Trek kick lately, reading old novels and re-watching old episodes. I decided to approach Voyager as I had with Enterprise. To that end, I looked at many best of lists to collate a comprehensive list of what are generally considered to be the better episodes of the show, I having to sit through all the boring ones. Honestly, who has time for that filth? However, this time, in addition to adding and tweaking here and there, I decided to follow the Den of Geek roadmap for the series. I won't binge, I'll take my time, watching a few episodes as time permits, and I'll revisit the show in chunks, starting with the pilot, Kurtaker. Written primarily by Pillar and Taylor with contributions from Berman, Curtaker was directed by Vinrik Kolb. As with the DS9 pilot, Voyager opens with a crawl, filling in the audience on the backstory, and opening with a pretty decent action beat, as a Cardassian warship attacks a much smaller and far less powerful vehicle. The smaller ship is a Maquis vessel manned by a number of crew members who will become familiar to us later. Vulcan officer Tuvok, Commander Chakotay and Pilot Torres. They are hit by a displacement wave and disappear. As with the original series and DS9, Voyager starts with a bang and a mystery and is damn captivating from the get-go. The backstory of the Maquis and the Cardassians and an appearance by Gul Evek from the next generation of DS9 was a nice nod to continuity. I question the logic of revealing Voyager in the opening credits, and perhaps this pilot movie would have benefited from not having the traditional opening credits. That said, Jerry Goldsmith's theme for Voyager is one of the best, a lovely lyrical piece that really captures the awe and wonder of space travel. It's married to some of the best visuals to ever appear in a Star Trek opening sequence. What you're about to hear, though, isn't that theme. This is the Vitamin String Quartet cover of the theme, which I think is actually quite lovely, but that's mainly because I'm a sucker for a mournful violin. Have a listen. Thank you. Caretaker opens really well, and the first half hour is some of the finest ever to appear in a Trek show. The characters are introduced with confidence, all of them are well played, and for the first time since the original series, the actors all seem comfortable from the get-go. Janeway is shown being both a badass captain and having a home life that is independent of her career, another new wrinkle for Star Trek where the captains all seem married to the job. Paris has an interesting backstory and the animosity between him and the other crew members, particularly the first officer and the chief medical officer is well handled, as is his burgeoning friendship with Harry Kim. The stopover at Deep Space Nine is very funny, featuring a nice cameo from Quark which highlights how green Kim is in contrast to the most streetwise Tom Paris. In fact, everything from the production values to the script are really tight and well done. The Voyager herself is introduced in a homage to the motion picture, with a brief tour of the ship from a shuttlecraft, which is slightly undercut, as I mentioned, by already seeing Voyager in the opening credits. Jay Chataway's score is unusually good, and this is an exceptional start. It only starts to go off the rails once the ship falls through the displacement beam and into the Gamma Quadrant. The deaths of the major officers is handled far too matter-of-factly, with no one giving a shit that the first officer and the CMO are dead. Only the Betazoid helmsman gets a moment of sadness at her passing, and only them because Paris was hitting on her. Rather incompetently, it has to be said earlier on in the show. The death of the chief medical officer does lead to the introduction of Robert Picardo as the emergency medical hologram and he owns every scene he's in, combining snark and exasperation in equal measure. The middle section though is flabby, with all the stuff with the caretaker initially offering an interesting Star Trekian dilemma but fizzling out before the end. The introduction of Neelix, though, is the first time we get what I refer to as one of Janeway's inexplicable command decisions. She trusts Neelix straight off the bat. It seems surprised when he not only lies to them, but also sets them up to save his girlfriend, who has been held by wannabe Klingons, the Kazon. I swear, after beaming back to the ship, I'd have hurled Neelix's ass into the brig... Second, with no thought of the Prime Directive, Janeway gives the K's on boatloads of water to help them survive, and then quite happily blurts out that they can make water out of thin air thanks to their replicators. This is a massively stupid thing to do, as not only does she interfere with a culture, but she paints a target on the Voyager's hull by admitting to a hostile race that they have something that they need to survive. Now, I'd buy Janeway sacrificing the prime directive to get a crew home or whatever later on in the series, but it's far too early for that here, and she doesn't even seem to wrestle with the decision. She's far too concerned that her boyfriend is looking after a dog, and that the kidnapped Harry Kim could play the clarinet. Tuvok brings the Prime Directive up later for Janeway to essentially dismiss it. Again, I would have no issues with her doing this if it was in the interest of saving her crew, but surely a Federation captain would deliberate about such a violation for longer than a nanosecond. Janeway then destroys the crew's only way home, and everyone, apart from Torres, accepts this because she's the captain. I would like this to become less a priority from the crew as the years were on, and would have very much liked to have seen the crew start to seriously question her orders, but again, we know how that turned out. The other issue, which I grant you isn't a deal-breaker, is that there are no personal stakes in this pilot movie. Now, Encounter at Farpoint didn't have any either, but that one didn't end with the crew stranded thousands of light-years away from home. The Cage had Captain Pike wrestling with his life decisions. Where No Man Has Gone Before had Captain Kirk agonising over having to kill his best friend. And Emissary, the Deep Space Nine pilot, had Commander Sisko coming to terms with his wife's death. All high-stakes, emotional through-lines for the Captain. Kurtaker has no such through-line, and as such feels a little bit hollow. There's some of the usual Star Trek gubbins about a superior race needing to move aside to let his children grow, which is fine but I felt that after a heavily character-orientated beginning, the move to a more explosive finale was a bit of a letdown. The ending is suitably Trek, though, with Janeway giving a stirring Captain's speech and setting up the main premise, getting home while still exploring new worlds and new civilizations. Kurt was an enjoyable, expansive, and obviously expensive pilot, but it's still not better than the original The Cage, which is still, for my money, the best pilot Star Trek ever made. The next recommended first season episode was Eye of the Needle. Jerry Taylor wrote this from a story by Hilary J. Bader, and on the one hand, it's a pretty formulaic story that ends the only way it can. The Voyager discovers a wormhole that Harry Kim believes originates in the Alpha Quadrant. However, it's a pinprick, far too small for Voyager or a shuttlecraft to enter. They can, however, send a signal, and this signal finds its mark, a Romulan vessel on the other side of the galaxy. After some strong convincing, the Romulan agrees to help send messages to the crew's families, only for it all to be in vain when Tuvok learns that not only is the Romulan 70,000 light years away, but he's also 20 years back in time. The story is, as I say, rather predictable. Voyager isn't getting home this early in the first season, nor is its crew letting Starfleet know that they are alive. They are developments that will come true, but four years hence. But that's not really the point. The main thrust of the story is to demonstrate the crew's loneliness regarding their situation, and all the credit for that must go to Kate Mulgrew. Janeway has a defeatist attitude in this episode, offset by moments of jubilation at the idea that they can get home, or at least let Starfleet know they are alive. Her hopes are dashed at every turn. She then turns these setbacks into a steely resolve, and it's actually a really good performance, anchoring the whole show as time constraints mean we don't really get into what the rest of the crew are thinking. There's even a pretty fun subplot about the holographic Doctor being considered part of the crew when Kez notes that they all treat him like a lesser life form. To be fair, he's a bloody program. He's more of a toaster than data. Still, Star Trek has always been big on promoting individual rights, so this didn't feel too out of place, and given that Robert Picardo is still the show's most valuable player, it felt right to acknowledge him. There's no Neelix either, so that's a bonus. For a bottle show, this was pretty damn good, and highlighted character over techno-babble, if we ignore all the gubbins about the wormhole at the beginning of the show. The only other first-season episode on this reading map I am following is Faces, written by Kenneth Biller and directed again by Venerate Kolb. This episode is deathly dull. I mean, really, this is one of the best? <sighs> There's one genuinely unsettling moment of horror in it, but for the most part, all I did throughout this one was look at the time. The plot sees Paris, Bellana, and some mark no one cares about caught by the bad plastic surgery villains, the Vidians, and experimented on while working in their mines. Bellana is split into a Klingon half and a human half. Who cares? When the Enemy Within did this, it was new and exciting and actually had a point. Kirk learned something about himself. Belana feels a little bit better and more comfortable as a human, but it doesn't matter if the Doctor's just going to put her back to normal at the end. This was the episode's biggest question mark. If Belana prefers being human, why not leave her like that? Her Klingon half is killed, so she has no reason to go back to being a half-Klingon if she doesn't want to. Of course, Voyager wasn't brave enough as a show to make that big of a change to an established character, but really, what would have changed in the grand scheme of things? The other issue I have with this episode is Roxanne Biggs Dawson's performance as Klingon Bellana. What the hell is going on with her line delivery? Is she trying to show that being a full Klingon makes speaking difficult, or was she just not able to perform with the Klingon teeth? She has this really staccato speech pattern that is just odd. Overall, though, this was just really boring. Lots of wandering around in caves does not a good episode make, as many a middle chapter of a Doctor Who story can attest. Honestly, if there are only three good episodes, or four if we count the pilot as two, in an entire season, no wonder many, including myself, bailed on this show after the first year. Now, granted, I don't know that I can really get a feel for who these people are after only three hours with them, but overall they seem a pretty cold and sterile bunch. He's hoping they warm up in the next season, where there are another four episodes that are recommended. The first of the season two shows is Projections, another Bran and Braga mindfuck. The EMH is engaged only to learn that the crew of Voyager abandoned ship, leaving him, he believes, the only member of the crew on board. He's about to deactivate himself when he learns the ship isn't deserted at all and Balana and Janeway are both still around. Things get even crazier when it turns out that the AMH is a real boy and the crew and Voyager itself are the holograms. Only Reg Barclay, a returning Dwight Schultz, can save the day. Braga uses the concept to throw in a lot of meta-commentary on how this is all only a TV show and maybe we shouldn't get as involved in it as we are, but he does manage to avoid the incessant techno-babble that normally pollutes his scripts. One of the things I've noticed is that a lot of the recommended episodes of Voyager are centred around either the EMH or Seven of Nine, a character I have not yet been introduced to. I have no idea what it says about the other characters that the better episodes aren't about, Shakote or Kim or Neelix. Actually, I do know what that says about them. Maybe Voyager could have trimmed the fat in regards to some of the regular characters by bumping one or two of them off. Jonathan Frakes directs the episode with his customary competence, and this is actually a neat little mystery that builds on its idea as well, keeping me entertained throughout, even though I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Throughout the episode, Barclay tries to get the EMH, who starts to believe he is in fact the EMH's creator, Louis Zimmerman, to destroy the ship, which is a massive red flag to viewers, and we are right to be suspicious. Braga starts building potential illusions within potential illusions and questions the character's reality, something that, along with temporal loops and spatial anomalies, Braga seems obsessed with, and the M8 starts to question himself and his place in the universe. Sadly, at this point, Commander Wooden, sorry, Shakote, arrives and mutters some drivel about feedback loops. The M8 is being conned because of some boopity-boop science, and it takes Kez to get through to him. As far as Braga Mindbenders go, this was a good one, complete with an extra fake out ending. Picardo is great, as usual, and it was nice to see Schultz again, especially when he starts playing an eviler Barclay. Sadly typecast as Howling Mad Murdoch, I've long thought Schultz was a much better actor than he's credited as being, and he proves it again here, giving a different shade to Barclay. Fraga would continue to mock the fanbase in later episodes, which would grow tiresome, but the nature of reality versus fantasy is a potent theme and exploited well. Meld, written by Mike Sussman and directed by Cliff Bowl, is suggested next. Brad Durif is excellent as a creepy Maquis officer who murders a Starfleet crew member for no reason. In trying to understand, Tuvok mind melds with him, only to have some of Durif's baser instincts infect his own personality. Another really good episode, despite being a cheap bottle show. It takes a pretty established Star Trek idea, the Vulcan mind meld, and does something interesting with it, allowing the show once again to tackle issues, in this case, random violence and capital punishment. I didn't really feel the second of these themes was adequately explored, as having Janeway really consider this option would have been intriguing. Instead, it falls to the ever-so-logical Tuvok to point out that, given the situation, executing Durif is a viable alternative, rather than allowing him to live and be taking valuable food from the crew. Alas, we don't really focus on this intriguing dilemma, although we do look at the effects a random and incomprehensible act of violence can have on a person, and it's a fascinating topic of exploration. Giving the capital punishment angle more weight is the idea that the crew are now on rations, a nice addition to the storyline. Again, having this play into Tuvok's argument could have made the episode more provocative. There's a B-plot with Tom Paris running an illegal gambling den which Chakotay shuts down because he's a massive fun sponge. Again, this storyline was not followed to its logical conclusion. Chakotay puts Paris on report, and Paris never once mouths off about who exactly Chakotay is putting him on report to. They are 75 years away from home. I would have liked Paris to point out that this is a fruitless and petty endeavour. Sadly, he doesn't take this opportunity to put Commander Splinter in his place. The episode, though, belongs to Tim Russ, who was a valuable hidden asset to this show, and his performance in this episode is absolutely magnificent. His anger is beautifully expressed after melding with Durif, and his learning of his savage nature in a holodeck simulation where he kills Neelix is both chilling, surprising, and rather enjoyable. To aid Tuvok, the earmate strips out Tuvok's emotions, and him extolling the virtues of executing Durif is a tour de force for Russ, It's also another example of why Vulcans are terrifying. I'd seen the next episode recommended Death Wish before and had actually been delighted by it. I reckon it's one of Voyager's best entries and proof positive the series could really hold its own against the original when it came to tackling topics of relevance. This time a member of the Q Continuum played by Gerrit Graham has had enough of his so-called immortal life and wants to end it all. This brings him not only into conflict with the Voyager crew, but also with Q, a returning John DeLancer, who refuses to let a member of the Continuum take his own life. What follows is one of the most daring and provocative treks since the 1960s, as the script tackles euthanasia, assisted suicide and the right to die, but crucially does it very, very well. It's a talky episode, but the dialogue is well written and when put into the mouths of two great actors, Graham and Delancey, both of whom know the way around a speech, it crackles. Not since the DS9 episode duet have two actors been allowed to go at it with such abandon. Not that the serious subject matter means that this is worthy, but dull. oh no, Graham and Delancey have a great time bouncing off each other and the regulars and manage to give their lines a nice comedic spin that elevates the material further. Arguments on both sides are put forth and there's no sermonising or lofty monologues, rather a clear statement of the issues that leave the audience and the crew wondering what position they would take. The ending is satisfying and unpredictable, with no easy answers. The only downside to this otherwise wonderful episode is Kate Mulgrew, who decides to whisper all her lines like she's on the verge of tears all the time. I honestly thought she'd wandered over from Moonbase Alpha by mistake. Still, she's a steely presence in other scenes, especially when Q appears in her bed, and she does have a pretty good chemistry with Delancey. I can see why Q became an annual visitor, much like he did on The Next Generation. A nice cameo from Jonathan Frakes as Commander Riker gives the episode a nice moment, even if in his one scene, Frakes exhibits more warmth and charm than Shakote can manage in seven years. But this, and Delancey's admittedly welcome presence, does mean that the rest of the crew are reduced to a second banana status. Watching this Den of Geek roadmap means I frequently forget Neelix is a part of the crew. I'll let you decide if that's a bad thing. Life Signs was next in the roadmap, and it's another starter Trek love story which are, let's be honest, rather hit and miss. When they are good, we get this side of paradise, or city on the edge of forever. When they are bad, we get in theory. Fortunately, this is a good one, largely due to the always excellent Robert Picardo, who manages to portray the holographic Doctor's first romantic stirrings with a mixture of perplexity and joy. Sure, it's a very teenage version of falling in love, but the Doctor is burly human, and has had no experience with human emotions generally, other than snark, so in this instance it rang true. Granted, there is the usual Star Trek problems with stories like this, such as, why would you program a computer to be able to live and evolve? Because at some point you have to classify them as life forms in their own right, as happened with data. The line between artificial intelligence and life becomes ever more blurred in the Star Trek universe. The episode also has some interesting things to say about true love and spiritual love. The love of a person for who they are, not what they look like. Sadly, all of this character stuff keeps getting interrupted by a subplot that goes nowhere in this episode. Paris is being increasingly insubordinate and there's a Nomark crew member reporting on the Voyager's activities to somebody called Nesca, I think. It's not that I don't like that Voyager is becoming a bit more serialised, it's that these scenes stick out in this episode like Serrano's nose. Unlike Babylon 5, which handled its ongoing plot in a viewer-friendly way, this goes nowhere in this episode. And if you just catch this one, or are doing a roadmap like me, it frankly doesn't make a lot of sense. Still, this one's fun, if only for the moment the EMH bluntly tells the subject of his affections that he fancies her, much to Kez's obvious horror. For its first 15 minutes, the next episode, Deadlock, is marvellous and thoroughly nail-biting. Voyager hits a subspace divergence field which causes massive power surges throughout the ship, leading to abject chaos. Sadly, the moment Harry Kim died made me fully aware that this was yet more Bran and, and mindfuckery, as there is no way this show was brave enough to kill off a regular cast member. This feeling is solidified when Janeway proposed to evacuate the bridge and suddenly sees Janeway on a perfectly undamaged bridge. Further complications arise when the sickbay has another Kez under sedation. Janeway leaps to the conclusion that there's another Voyager out there. It's a high-concept episode, to be sure, and Braga's off-kilter imagination is firing on all cylinders. It's wonderfully entertaining, there's no doubt about that, and for all of my dislike of Voyager's reset button, spatial anomaly plots, and Braga's reality bending, it's undeniable that this episode is pretty solid drama. The overuse of the Vidians at this point in the series is unwelcome, and I still wish they'd killed Harry, but kudos to Braga for pulling a genuine surprise out of his hat at the climax. That said, given the amount of damage that Voyager sustains in this episode, the fact that she's back to normal next week is a cop-out of the highest order. The episode closes, though, with one of the best closing lines of dialogue of any Star Trek episode. We're Starfleet officers. Weird is part of the job. For the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, both shows on the air at the time, Voyager and Deep Space Nine did tribute episodes celebrating the longevity of the franchise. Whereas Deep Space Nine went for pure nostalgia, Voyager, perhaps because the producers weren't necessarily big fans of the original, went for a more traditional take, with an episode taking place in Tuvok's brain, but containing scenes set back in Kirk's time. For reasons of budget, the setting was the USS Excelsior, under the command of Captain Sulu, a returning George Takai, and utilised scenes and effect shot created for the then newly released Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. It's quite a clever conceit, and this episode establishes that Tuvok served with Sulu and was presumably just out of shot whenever we saw the bridge in that film. Anyway, the Grant Morrison of Star Trek, Bran and Braga, pens a script which is yet more mind-bending, but here he burly makes an effort to conceal that this is a flimsy reason for the nostalgia. He writes the catalyst for the story, Tuvok's mental breakdown, with a line akin to, Who cares? It's just a rump." To be fair, I prefer that to pages of techno babble, and he's right, this is a romp and a mostly enjoyable one at that. Seeing Janeway in a movie era uniform, even one that is clearly too big for her, is fun, and watching Sulu strut his stuff is Takai's best role in years. Getting Grace Lee Whitney back as Rand is also a lovely touch, but it's the one scene cameo from Michael Ansara as Kang which really gave me fanboy goosebumps. It's not a perfect episode. There's a scene at the beginning with Chakotay and Tuvok in which Chakotay is supposed to deliver some witty asides. Instead, Robert Beltran throws them away like a ten-year-old in a school play, bringing no wit, no humour and no twinkle in the eye to the dialogue. William Shatner or DeForest Kelly would have milked those lines for all they were worth, yet Beltran spits them out like a man who'd rather be anywhere else doing anything. I also question the logic of nerve-pinching Rand to steal her uniform for Janeway, rather than just getting a spur out of ship's stores. Maybe one that fit a little better. Janeway is also very patronising about Kirk & Co's methods, and she's clearly not the history buff Picard is, as she isn't certain how the whole Rurapente and Kitama thing went down. Still, this is a pleasant enough diversion and a neat companion piece to Star Trek VI. The shoot sees Tom Paris and Harry Kim shore leave to future Captain Kirk's father's home planet spoiled when they are accused of a terrorist attack and sentenced to a space prison that makes Rura Pente look like Risa. We've all heard horror stories of those holidays where people end up in jail for not understanding local customs but this takes the cake. It's a fairly intense story, opening up in media res and filling in the gaps as we trot along, upping the ante in mostly effective ways. First, when we discover the prison isn't on a planet at all, but a starship, and second, when Paris is stabbed quite severely, and Kim is forced to look after his buddy and try and find an escape route. To bring Kim and Paris to the brink of madness quite quickly, the story establishes that they have an implant named The Clamp, which has the unfortunate side effect of sounding like an STD. The clamp makes the prisoners short-tempered and more aggressive, which saves on money, as they tend to kill each other over the slightest thing. This does make it so the story can backtrack slightly on Paris and Kim's short-tempered and adversarial nature, and not have to address it in future episodes. But in the moment, both Robert Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wang excel when given some meatier material. The rest of the crew aren't really given a lot to do other than worry about their crewmates and then perform the last minute rescue we all know is coming. Shakote, the EMH and Kez, have little more than cameo appearances. No great loss in the Wood and Oaks case. And although Neelix only features in the final act, he does get out of the kitchen and act heroically for a change. Other than that, this one didn't really grab me. It's not bad at all, at least the impetus for the story isn't another damn spatial anomaly. And there are some fine performances, especially from Garrett Wang, who I've previously dismissed as rather useless and boring. But I didn't find it all that captivating either. Future's End, a two-part episode by Brannon Braga and Joe Minoski, was Voyager's answer to Star Trek IV. The crew were hurled back in time to 1996, after a time ship from the 29th century accuses them of being involved in some temporal gubbins which will result in the destruction of Earth. Braga and Minoski were always interested in the more surreal aspects of Trek, but this is a pretty straightforward story for them. It's an extrapolation of an idea from an episode of The Next Generation called A Matter of Time, in which a man, played by Matt Frewer, supposedly from the future, visits the Enterprise crew, only he turns out to be a flim-flam man. Here, the 29th century commander isn't a con man, but, thanks to the temporal shenanigans so beloved by Braga, he ends up stranded in the past, where Green Bean from Battlestar Galactica, aka actor Ed Begley Jr., has used the timeship to set himself up as a technology magnate. Needless to say, the Voyager crew must kind of set things right, only they can't. In a nice twist, the timeship being, though, led to the silicon chip explosion of the late 90s, meaning that it was supposed to happen. Pretty neat. There's a lot of fun to be had with Neelix and Kez becoming addicted to soap operas, Tom Paris's knowledge of the late 20th century being slightly off, and commentary about the pollution in the atmosphere, as with Star Trek IV. But the meat of the story is contrasting Sarah Silverman's naive and idealistic Rain Robinson with Begley Jr.'s corrupt industrialist. Begley is a wonderful piece of casting, taking an actor renowned for his environmental action and putting me in the role of a man willing to destroy the entire environment of Earth for wealth and power. Star Trek was pretty good at doing time travel stories and putting in snide aside about actions taking place now affecting the future, and Future's End continues that noble tradition, complete with a quote from City on the Edge of Forever. There's loads of good character moments here as well. Paris and Tuvok make a funny odd couple, and Harry Kim in command gives another dimension to his character. The episode also changes a character's status quo, as the yearmate is given the opportunity to leave sickbay thanks to a hollow emitter he steals from the 29th century commander's ship. There's also a lovely dose of irony in a Star Trek captain being on the receiving end of a prime directive order, but the high point, as with the original series episode Tomorrow is Yesterday, is seeing Voyager fly above present-day Los Angeles and be thought to be a UFO. Overall, Future's End is a charming and entertaining segment, probably well worth your time. Microcosm, again by Brannon Braga, is a claustrophobic and entertaining romp in which Janeway must go all John McClane on the asses of a mutated insect virus that threatens the Voyager crew. Seeing Janeway donning a sweaty vest and crawling through Jeffrey's tubes makes this another fun segment, even if the CG leaves a little to be desired in places. It's another Voyager episode that ditches the regular crew for a significant portion of its running time, allowing this to be a two-hander, first between Janeway and Neelix, who then mysteriously disappears for the last half of the show, to be replaced by the EMH, who provides the necessary backstory as what happened to Voyager whilst she and Neelix were away. Mulgrew carries the show admirably, proving herself to be a capable action hero, holding her own against the memory of Ripley and Sarah Connor, and if the episode slows down in the midsection, well, the audience have to know how the Voyager Bunch disappeared. It does slow the momentum down somewhat, though. Unlike a lot of Trek, at first blush, this doesn't appear to be about anything, Although there are lines about tolerance for others when Janeway nearly commits an egregious error when communicating with the aliens of the week. The... Braga has confirmed that this was supposed to be a romp, which it is, but it's also one of those rare episodes of 90s Trek that demonstrates how dangerous space can be. This is a race unlike any other in the Trek canon, a race that can't be communicated with, isn't doing anything wrong per se, but is nevertheless lethal to the crew. I don't know that I'd rank this as a best episode, but for what it was, it was an amiable way to spend 45 minutes. In contrast, Before and After is a corker of an episode. One of those marvellous off-concept stories that the various Star Trek series do so well, Before and After features a time-travelling Kez moving backwards through her own life. As with Yesterday's Enterprise, writer Ken Biller trusts the audience to go along with the events occurring, throwing new developments that leave us scratching our heads. Kez is old. The Doctor has her. His name is Van Gogh. Kez is married to Tom Paris, and the daughter is married to Harry Kim, and they have a son. J-Way and Bellana are dead thanks to something called The Year of Hell. The usual techno-babble guff about biotemporal containment fields and chroniton and anti-chroniton radiation can't spoil what is a really inventive time travel episode that really seeds future events, such as the Krenny and Paris and Bellana's relationship. One of the great joys of this episode map is my change of opinion regarding Kate Mulgrew and, by extension, Janeway. She's really gone up in my estimation to the point where I actually miss her throughout the first half of this episode, where Commander Mahogany is captain. Jennifer Lien manages to carry the show quite admirably, although she's not as captivating a performer as Robert Picardo, who still steals every scene he's in. Harry Kim is still boring. Interestingly, a lot of this episode will play out again in the Season 4 two-parter The Year of Hell. Apparently, that two-parter should have closed out this season and started the next but was put on the back burner when plans changed. Plans I will cover more in depth in the next part of my Voyager roadmap rewatch. For now, though, give this one a go. It's not an episode that can be watched in complete isolation – you do need to know who the characters are and a bit of the backstory, but having Kess leap far enough back in time that she can help fix the problem that got her into this mess in the first place is itself pretty ingenious. And having her go all the way back to being a fetus was a genuine shock. When Trek did time travel well, no other show on TV was as inventive Even Doctor Who only really embraced the paradoxes of time travel once in its original run, City of Death, in 1978, and then when Stephen Moffat started writing it. The ending is a tad corny, everyone has a good laugh in True Trouble with Tribble's fashion, but overall, this was a very pleasant surprise. In the Season 3 finale, Scorpion, the Voyager, finally enters Borg space, only to uncover a threat that makes even Star Trek Cybermen look like packlets. Scorpion starts out incredibly strongly and with a very short cold open in which two Borg cubes are destroyed quickly and without mercy. Whilst the Borg do become a tad overplayed, Voyager manages to pull off a cinematic quality outing here that even manages to delve into character in the smaller moments. There's a scene in the Captain's ready room between Janeway and Chakotay that hints at a more than friends relationship between the two that made me warm slightly to command a tree trunk. Mulgrew is actually really good in this episode. A quick perusal of memory alpha reveals that during the third season the writers started incorporating more Mulgrew into Janeway, making her character more daring, edgy and unpredictable. She's very convincing here, torn between her desire to get her crew home while still performing her duties as captain. Trapped between the warring Borg and the new species and locating a way home, Mulgrew excels. The threat of the new species, species 8472, is pretty well developed, especially in its setup. Tom Paris's excellent line, Who could do this to the Borg? upon discovering the Borg graveyard, is really chilling. Janeway's solution, an alliance with the Borg, is daring and a true risk. Kirk probably would have approved. Shakote doesn't, telling Janeway of the parable of the frog and the scorpion. However, in his culture, it's a fox, not a frog. He thinks this is too much of a risk, and Voyager introducing some conflict between the captain and first officer finally follows up on the promise of the pilot. To be fair, Chicote does put forth some good points as to why helping the Borg is a bad move, and despite some truly great effects and cinematic set pieces, this is the best scene in the episode. If only Beltran had brought a little bit of passion to it. Scorpion concludes Season 3 in action-packed form, and Voyager seems to have reinvented itself with this episode. The lighting and storytelling is a little darker, to the benefits of the show. The roadmap going forth features more episodes per season, which bodes well, so we'll leave it here and pick up with Season 4 and 5 on a future episode. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek, its ongoing mission, to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Give Me That Star Trek, a new episode every month only at FireAndWaterPodcast.com and on iTunes. Okay, only one email over Christmas. I presume you're all busy drinking. Gene uh, Hendricks, B5, Year One, and I've just listened to your episode on the first season of Babylon 5, and I couldn't agree with you more. I first saw B5 in reruns on the cable station TNT, so I saw them out of order. When I got to the first episodes, I was stunned at just how good the show was from the start. I don't think any sci-fi show was as strong out of the gate since the original Star Trek. That fact that it just got better as the show went along, at least for the first four seasons, was something that was also pretty amazing. It's funny when you go back and watch old TV and see people before they made it big. Michelle and I are currently watching through Hill Street Blues, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, and one of the recurring guest stars is Peter Jurassic. Seeing him as a greasy drug dealer with a Queen's accent is interesting, but you can also see where he pulled the Londo personality from. I'm looking forward to your episodes on the other seasons of B5. Should the muse take you in that direction, if I don't have a chance to speak to you beforehand, have a happy Christmas, Gene. Well, thank you very much, Gene. Hope you did too. Yeah, it was nice Christmas, nice and relaxing for once. Uh, Hopefully, the year will continue to be relaxing, but I severely doubt it. Anyway, uh, thank you for joining me. The Palace of Glittering Delights is a two true freaks presentation. If you want to email me and. Do so because the email bag is empty. Uh, hey kids, comics at virginmedia.com is still the email address. Uh, I'll be back next time with whatever comes up first. I am working on the next Voyager episode. There's a Sequest DSV show coming down the pike. I'm sure there are at least three people who can't wait for that. And a Space Precinct episode. Jerry Anderson's Space Precinct recently got a box set DVD which somebody bought me for Christmas. So I've been watching a couple of those as well. All right, I'll see you next time. Take care and remember, everything's going to be fine.